Well, you can join me in opening your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11. And if you don't have a Bible with you, please grab one under a seat nearby you, and you can find Mark 11 on page 847 in those Bibles. And if you don't own a Bible, uh, please take that copy with you. We'd love for you uh, to have that as a gift um, and continue reading to getting to know um, the one true God. So this text we're about to read here is describing Jesus entering Jerusalem to begin his final week of ministry. His whole ministry has been building up to this point in many ways. And to get a sense of the significance, just consider how much space Mark gives to this. The first 10 chapters of this gospel have been focusing on Jesus' ministry, and then now from chapters 11 to 16, it's just the final week. So a third of the content that Mark chose to describe about Jesus is now concentrated in this final week. And if you've been reading the Gospel of Mark, you've seen a repeated word is immediately, immediately, immediately. It's like breakneck pace, moving through three years of Jesus' ministry, and then slowing down for this final week. Clearly significant. And as Jesus enters Jerusalem, he's entering into a storm, and he knows it. He knows exactly what's going to happen to him, and it's going to be a week of controversy. From as early as Mark chapter 3, we've seen that the Jewish leaders have wanted to kill him. They've tried to trap him and find reasons to arrest him, but they couldn't. And yet now Jesus heads straight into headquarters. He's going straight to Jerusalem, heading right into a storm. A few days ago, my son Chase and I went to St. Louis to visit my parents. And when we left on Thursday, we were having to rush out because this on the radar, it looked like Missouri was engulfed in a storm, and it was heading 60 miles per hour east. Uh, so we were rushing out, and we ended up just getting right on the front edge, and we're riding the front edge of that storm uh, for quite some time. I mean, if we hit traffic, we're in the middle of it, and there was, you know, warnings of tornadoes and hail. And so in front of us, the, it was a bright, white, beautiful sky, and then rearview mirror, it's, it's just grayish, green, ominous trash is kind of getting blown around, and so we were able to keep that pace uh, for quite a while, but for a couple hours it was like this. Beautiful skies ahead, storm behind, any cars that were heading that way looked crazy to me. Um, that's what Jesus is doing, right? We're getting away from the storm. We all want to get away from the storm. Jesus heads into it knowing what's coming, and when he arrives, he actually stirs things up and provokes what comes upon him. He is in charge. So let's read Mark chapter 11. Jesus does a number of things that are uh, seemingly out of step with what he normally does. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom 
of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem, and he went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and they entered the temple, and, or, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written from the prophet Isaiah, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But from Jeremiah, you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. And they passed by in the morning. As they passed by, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer... Believe that you've received it, and it'll be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. Let's pray and ask the Lord's help. Our Father, we thank you for your word here, and we sense that we have much to learn. Um, not only about what is happening here in that moment in Jesus' ministry, but about what this means for us and about what this means for how we understand who you are and who the Lord Jesus is. So please give us insight by the Holy Spirit. Open our minds and hearts to be receptive and humble to receive what you have to say and transform us, surprise us with how you'll change our hearts in this time. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, that's quite a moment, isn't it? What is Jesus up to? He does three main things here that are incredibly odd. First, he rides in to the city with fanfare after three years of telling people to be silent about him. Then he destroys a tree after three years of never destroying anything that we have record of. And then he threw over tables after three years of not showing any kind of physical roughness. He looks out of control to some people. But these actions are actually quite profound and purposeful. They're what we could call prophetic actions. They're symbolic, and they are charged with symbolic significance. And so do you remember that Mark called Jesus' teachings earlier in his ministry parables? He called them parables because they were symbolic stories that made a point. What Jesus does here is like parables, except instead of telling a story, he actually does actions. So these are three we could call enacted parables. What he does there are symbolic actions, just like his symbolic stories that make a point. He's communicating a message in what he's doing, a very pointed 
message. And here's the point overall from these three peculiar actions. Jesus is the king who came to judge and renew his true people. So why does this matter? Because here's what's going on here. Jesus is pronouncing judgment on Israel and especially their leaders. He's coming to the very heart of Israel's life, and he is condemning it. This gives us a very clear picture of the kind of Christianity, version of Christianity, the kind of religion, the kind of community that Jesus actually judges rather than accepts. And what's so striking here is that these people were those who claimed to know God, claimed to teach about God, but for all of its goodness in whatever sense they thought they had it, it was empty and corrupt. And so Jesus comes to condemn it. Now the world is filled with these very kinds of movements and religions. I mean, religions and even anti-religious movements and even movements of secularism give bad answers to life's most important questions, and they harm people as a result of those answers. And these movements are filled with people who claim to do good and promise great hope but are actually part of the problem. And this story shows that Jesus comes into town to overturn their tables. So by the end of the sermon, we should all figure out which side of Jesus we are on. That's the point here. Because he couldn't be clearer in, this, in the way that he acts here that he is the only way forward for humanity. So Jesus comes to town to show that he's the true king and he judges people and he renews his true people. And we see this in these three symbolic actions, this colt ride, this cursed tree, and the overturned table. So let's just walk through each of those three symbolic actions uh, to grasp his point here. So the first one is this colt ride. So Jesus, when he enters towns, he doesn't ride on things. I mean, he just walks in. That's what he's always done. And he could have done that just like every other time here, but he didn't. He did it in a way that sent a clear message to the people there that he is the true king of Israel and the world, of you and I, of every nation. So the first thing he did as he entered was coordinate a colt ride. So it's a peculiar moment. He sends his disciples into a village nearby, and he said that they will find a colt tied up there that no one's ridden before. And he said, untie it and bring it to me. And if anyone asks about it, tell them what's going on. And he says, people will say, okay, cool. And then you'll take it back. So just, I'm just going to borrow a colt there. Um, I just think this is kind of a funny moment because I bet for the rest of his life, the guy who gave Jesus the colt was kind of known as the guy who gave Jesus the colt. You know, people are like, hey, did you really know Jesus? Yeah, that was my donkey. Did you hear about that? But here's the main point. Jesus isn't just kind of like setting up an Uber ride because he doesn't even let his disciples join in anyways. This is just for him. And it's to send a message. He's signaling that he is the true king. Now, if someone rides a colt into our town, we don't get that message. But they would have gotten that message back then very clearly. And here's one way we know, because Jesus was fulfilling a prophecy from Zechariah 9, 9 that says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Right, this great king from David's line who's going to deliver God's people, set up his eternal kingdom over all things. He's coming, and he's coming humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt. 
the foal of a donkey. So Jesus, you know, one thing that strikes me as we've gone through the Gospel of Mark is he is constantly staging things. He sets things up all the time to create moments to teach and to show who he is and why he came. And so he staged this to give this message. And this isn't just a random prophecy that he hopes people would pick up on. This is the kind of thing actually that was reenacted multiple times in ancient history. So King Solomon had before that prophecy already ridden into to Jerusalem on a colt to take his throne and strengthen his kingship. And then after that prophecy, this was reenacted a number of times. One of the most prominent was with Judas Maccabeus. He rode into Jerusalem like this. He had just defeated this awful Syrian king, Antiochus Epiphanes, and the book of Daniel talks about just a terrible guy. And so Judas conquers him, and then he rides back into the capital city, Jerusalem, like this, purifies the temple, and then he starts his dynasty. And others had repeated this pattern as well. So Jesus is fitting the pattern, fulfilling the prophecy, sending a message. And it's clear the people got it, because look how they respond. They give him this red carpet entrance. Verse 8, you can look at it with me. Many people spread their cloaks on the road. Now, this would have been one of their best possessions. They didn't have a lot. It would have been expensive, and they're throwing it out on the dirt in front of Jesus. And then others are cutting down branches and spreading them out on the ground. So people do not do this unless this is royalty coming to town. And then they shout out a quotation from Psalm 118 about praising a coming king. So this is verses 9 and 10. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, and this is a quotation, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. So this isn't just a random psalm of celebration. Psalm 118 was a politically charged psalm. And the people would recite it regularly as they journeyed to Jerusalem, especially at Passover, when they were longing for God to bring the salvation He said He would bring hundreds of years earlier that fulfill all of the promises from the beginning of Bible, the Bible to the end, from the, the moment sin entered the world and God said He would crush the head of Satan and send a king to renew all things. And then we find out this is coming through David's line, and so they're longing, Lord, bring your king. Make all things new. And so they, they praise Him with this psalm, longing for this to happen. And that psalm describes a king that seems to be a king from David's line conquering Israel's enemies. And then this king in Psalm 118 journeys to Jerusalem, goes to the temple, and is welcomed by the leadership of Israel and blessed in the name of the Lord. So Jesus stages this to fulfill the pattern because he's the true king. So now, what happens? Well, he enters Jerusalem, and he goes into the temple, and according to Psalm 118, the leaders are to welcome him and bless him in the name of the King, in the name of the Lord, time to get your throne, time to set up your kingdom, and what happens instead? Verse 11, he entered the temple, he looks around, and he leaves. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty anticlimactic. Uh, he's the king, and the point is he's going to be rejected. The leaders know what they're supposed to do. They don't welcome him because they want to kill him. 
So he doesn't get the, the reception as king. So the cult ride shows his identity as the true king. And so the question for the leaders of Jerusalem is this. Will they welcome Jesus and acknowledge his kingship or not? And it's the same question for every one of us. Will you and I welcome the kingship of Jesus over all of our life and over all things? All right, the second symbolic action is this cursed tree. Now, many people have said this story uh, confirms that Jesus is not worthy of worship. He certainly is not worthy to be the world's true king. It looks like he's just getting hangry, and he curses this tree out of spite. Bertrand Russell was one of the most well-known atheists of a previous generation, and he wrote an essay titled, Why I Am Not a Christian. And in it, he said that this story shows a defect in Jesus' moral character. Christopher Hitchens repeated that more recently in a New York Times article where he asked, how is it moral to condemn fig trees? And he said, this is the kind of person that isn't divine. He's a sorcerer or a fanatic. And you can understand that if you just look at this occurrence, like what is going on here? Why is Jesus cursing a tree for not bearing fruit? And this is why some liberal, theologically liberal scholars said it didn't actually happen. You know, they want to kind of take Jesus in the Bible in some sense, but they're, they're embarrassed by a lot of what Jesus did. And so they say that Mark or an early Christian must have actually made this story up because the Jesus that they want wouldn't have done something like this. But here's where a basic principle of reading good literature helps us. The basic principle is this. You read things in context, right? Context is always helpful. You look for how authors have carefully structured stories. So if you've been here for the past few months, we've seen that Mark is a very careful literary writer, and he actually uses a certain literary tool over and over. He'll start a story with one focus, then he'll move to another story, and then he'll tell a third one that is either coming back to the first or has the same exact theme as the first. So scholars call this the Mark and Sandwich. I've mentioned this, right? So you have like the bun, which is the first story and the third, and then there's a different story in between the two. But the, the bun matches, and they, they all help to interpret one another here. So look at how Mark structured this. He tells the story of the fig tree in verses 12 to 14, and then look down at verse 20. He comes back to it again. And what's in between it? Jesus denouncing the people and the leaders in the temple, which we'll come to in a minute. So what's the connection? Well, he's surrounding the story of the judgment of the temple with this story of this cursing of the fig tree. So they both interpret one another. They're both about the same thing, in other words. Jewish prophets often would create these kinds of teachable moments. They'd do very strange things that make no sense at all unless you see that they're connecting this to some kind of message. So let's look at what Jesus does here. He's walking on the road. He's hungry. He sees in the distance a fig tree with leaves. Mark says it's not the season for figs. So here's a bit of the background. This is spring when Jesus is walking here, and the fig trees would start growing leaves in the spring, and then they'd have these little small uh, green, we could call them figs, they developed, but they were immature, and they wouldn't be harvested then as figs until the fall. So it's not technically fig season, but there still should be a lot of green buds that are edible here, and Jesus shows up, and there's nothing. So just leaves, no fruit. And honestly, regardless of that little historic background detail, I don't think it ultimately matters because the whole point here is that Jesus is creating a teachable moment. 
So there's leaves and there's no fruit. And Jesus makes a point of that. And, and notice Mark adds, his disciples heard it. Right? He wants us to see Jesus wants the disciples to hear this. He's saying something, not just because he's frustrated, but because he's creating a teachable moment. They have no idea what's going on yet, but they will the next day. And so then Jesus goes into the temple, condemns the whole place, and then look at verses 20 and 21. The disciples see the fig tree, and now it is withered, and notice, to the root. So the fig tree is a picture of Israel, as Israel was referred to often in the Old Testament as a vine or a fig tree, uh, something that was supposed to bear fruit. So this is a picture of Israel and especially their leaders. They're a tree that's supposed to bear the fruit of love, loving God, loving one another. That's the heart of the law. That's the fruit that God expects for his people. And they have the leaves but no fruit. They, they look religious, but they lack love. They're hypocrites, and their spirituality is empty, even though they think they alone have the truth on the planet. So Jesus uses the moment to reinforce the message of the temple cleansing or judging. Israel lacks the fruit, and they'll be judged. So this is not about Jesus just being hungry and spiteful. It's not just a random use of power. Jesus isn't just getting hangry. He's judging hypocrisy, and he's showing this through this enacted parable. So if any people no matter you know, whether or not they go to church or they claim to be God's people, if they lack the fruit of love, it is evidence they do not actually know and trust God. So Jesus does not offer cheap grace. It's a reminder to all of us. He offers endless grace for our many sins. But he's also a God who transforms us and causes us to bear fruit. And so he invites us not to just receive grace as an excuse for sin, but receive grace for forgiveness and transformation. And they weren't interested in that. They just wanted God's grace to secure them to do whatever they wanted. And Jesus sees through it, and it's been happening for centuries, since the beginning of Israel's history, actually. And he says it's time. It's time to be judged. So let's move then to the last primary symbolic action, which is these, these overturned tables. So this is a provocative symbolic act of judgment. It's a shocking scene. He starts driving people out of the temple. Look at verse 15. He entered the temple. He began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers, and he overturns the seats of those who sold pigeons, and he wouldn't allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. What would that have been like to see? This is not a domesticated Jesus. He drove people out. He's flipping tables. He's spilling coins. He's overturning chairs. And he's refusing to let people carry anything through the temple. He's shutting the whole operation down. And we see why. There's two layers to the problems here. So let's start with the first. The first layer is greed. So Israel, Israelites would travel to Jerusalem to pay taxes and to offer sacrifices. And because they wouldn't often take their animals with them, they needed to buy the animal in Jerusalem, and they needed to exchange their coins. As best we can tell, it's because, you know, the coins that they had would have had Caesar's image on them, which would have been idolatrous in the temple. And so they had a special temple coin, and so they're exchanging coins for these things. And so merchants decided it would be a good idea to get the best spot and just set up shop right there in the temple courts. 
And they'd sell their animals for sacrifice. They'd exchange their money. But what they did is they would jack up the exchange rate. And so they were, they were taking advantage of people, especially the poor people. Notice Jesus is throwing over the seats of those who sold pigeons. That would have been for those who couldn't afford the larger sacrifices. So these are the poor people, especially on his heart and mind here. And so they're taking advantage of the poor. It's an example of how ministry can be corrupted by greed. Some religious leaders give a show of helping people to worship, but really they just want people's money. They take money from the poor so they can buy their mansions. They promise that God will give them prosperity in exchange for their donation to their ministry. So this is what we call the health and wealth gospel. It's rampant across the globe, and we stand with Jesus in condemning it. And Jesus flips their tables. And now there's a second layer. It's not just greed. And we see it in what Jesus says here. He quotes from two Old Testament prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah, and they're loaded with significance. So the first is Isaiah. Notice verse 17. Jesus says, Is it not written, My house, right, the temple, shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? Now, whenever Jesus quotes from the Old Testament, he isn't ripping verses out of context. We understand that Jesus was reading things in context as well, just as we're trying to read Mark in context. And so the larger text of Isaiah that he's quoting from promised that God's salvation, when it comes, would spread to the whole world. Nations would come streaming in and worship. And so Jesus is walking into the temple now saying, this is not a place of prayer open to the nations. You're scamming people. You're just greedy. And you've changed the whole point of the temple here. You're just lining your pockets. You've traded God's mission for more money. Then the second quote is from Jeremiah. He says, you've made this place a den of robbers or a, a cave of robbers, a refuge for thieves. So if you go back to Jeremiah 7, we find out just how relevant that is for this moment as well. Again, it's not just a random uh, line that was applicable Jesus is drawing on the message from Jeremiah there. And in Jeremiah 7, God was announcing a judgment over the people and the temple. In Jeremiah's day, the people would come to the temple to worship, and their lives were a wreck. They're going through the motions of worshiping God, but they're corrupt. They looked at their religion as, and the temple as some kind of cheap grace covering, saying, well, as long as we're here, God's for us. We're fine. We can do whatever we want. And so they used their religion that God gave them as a cover for oppression. And the leaders of Jeremiah's day took advantage of the poor. They thought they were safe because they had the temple. And God said, no, it's going to be destroyed and you're going to be judged because you've made the temple not a house for God, but a den of robbers. So Jesus is now walking into the temple centuries later and nothing's changed, though much has happened in history, even the temple being torn down and another one rebuilt. And he's talking to all these leaders, and then he quotes Jeremiah 7 to them here. And what he's saying then is, he's saying that the leaders in front of him are just as corrupt as the leaders in Jeremiah's day. And so God's message stands, this place is going down, and you're going to be judged because you're hypocrites. So Jesus is saying that Israel and the temple and their leaders, it's over as they knew it. The people are fruitless. The leaders are corrupt. The temple will be destroyed. Now, most of us haven't been to a temple, and we can 
sometimes maybe not grasp just how significant this would have been for them and what a significant place that was. We think of the temple as a, just a religious place off to the side, but the temple was the heart of their society. It was the heart of their political, religious, economic, and educational life. It was, for them, it was kind of like the White House, the Pentagon, and Wall Street rolled into one. Jesus walks in then, and he stops everything. And he's giving this symbolic announcement of a coming judgment. And he'll get clear as these chapters go in this week, and he'll say eventually that not one stone's going to be left on top of another, and that ended up happening within a generation. A.D. 70, you can look it up. Israel and the temple were judged. The temple was destroyed. Israel, as they knew it, was replaced by Jesus and his people from Jews and Gentiles. So we know from other things that Jesus said that he's up to something here. He is the true temple. He is the dwelling place of God where God meets humanity. And he's creating a new people around him. Right, the 12 disciples, 12 because they represent the 12 tribes, right? He's creating a new people around him who will be a true, true temple, the, God's presence in the world. And so this is a symbolic action, just like the others. Jesus rides in on a donkey to say that he's the king and he's coming to reign. He curses the tree to show that judgment is coming over a fruitless people. And then he flips over tables to say that there's a judgment coming for Israel and their temple. So how do we respond to this? Well, there's a lot of things we could say, but I think the last section gives us an indication of some of the direction would be helpful to go here. It shows us the new community. So Jesus left the temple. He passed by the fig tree. Peter notes that it's withered. So it's a picture of Israel and the leaders being judged. They failed to bear the fruit of love, so they're withered to the roots. The disciples don't quite get it yet, so they ask, what does it mean? Why will the tree, why the tree wither? And then Jesus surprisingly doesn't give a straightforward answer here. Instead, he calls them to three actions, faith, prayer, and forgiveness. Why? What is the connection? After all that he did, and they're saying, what's going on with the tree? And then he starts talking about faith, prayer, and forgiveness. Here's what I think the connection is. Those three realities were at the heart of what the temple was supposed to be all about in the first place. It was the place to demonstrate our trust in God. It was the place to pray both for the nations and for the nations to come in and pray and worship. And it was the place to find forgiveness from God and then live as a community that receives the forgiveness for God and then extends it to one another and forgives one another. But Jesus is now saying the temple's going down. Israel as a nation is going to be judged, and so now a new community is going to form around him. Jesus is the true temple. His community becomes part of this new temple, as Peter, who was there, will actually ask about the tree, will later say, we're all living stones being built up together in this true temple. And so if the old temple is gone, then the heart of the temple needs to find its fulfillment in Jesus and his people. And so what will that look like? Well, according to Jesus, it looks like three things. Faith, prayer, and forgiveness. Of course, among other things. But that's the focus here. So let's consider this for us then as a church family. First faith, verse 22. Jesus answered them, have faith in God. 
So the very first thing he calls them to do is to trust God, unlike what was going on in that temple. And the main way we trust God in this section is to welcome Jesus as the true king. One of the main questions this text asks of us is, which side of Jesus are you on? Are you welcoming him as the true king of the world and of every corner of your life and every moment of your life? Does he have authority over the way you talk, what you say, the tone you say it in, over what you put out on social media and the tone at which you say it? Does he have authority to have an opinion about how you treat other people? Does he have an opinion about how you handle your business or what you do in school or whether or not you cheat other people or cheat in school? And if he does, is he the king or not? Will he have authority? Do you welcome his authority over your life as good? Which side of Jesus are you on? Or will you actively deny him in the way you live, although you'll still claim to follow him and look religious as those people at the temple did? So this text is one of the clearer moments in Jesus' ministry where he calls us to make a choice. He shows us who he is and how we respond will matter forever. We'll either be aligned with him or we'll be aligned against him. So maybe you've been exploring Jesus for a time. This text calls you to an urgency. At one level, the Lord is patient with you. Um, we have all the time we need to, to work through honest questions. You may have really significant questions about Jesus. You may still not even be persuaded this morning that he's not kind of unhinged here in this text. And I'd love to talk to you about it, and we have time for that. But while there's also time and patience, life is short, and there's an urgency here to come to a conclusion. And so perhaps even right now, that's it for you. May you've been thinking, yeah, I have been learning about Jesus long enough, and I need to settle it. I'm going to do what he called me to do, which is to deny myself, take up my cross, and follow him. I'm going to receive his grace, and I'm going to follow him. We're uh, reading the Bible as a family the other night. We're reading through 1 Samuel together, and I mentioned something about trusting Jesus, and one of my sons said, what does it mean to trust Jesus? He wanted to make sure he's doing it. And so we've been talking about the past few days as well, so I'll just share the response I gave at that point, because it's just a summary of what does it look like then to trust in Jesus? And do you want to know what it looks like to become a Christian and to grow as a Christian? At the heart of it is trusting Jesus, and specifically, you trust Him as your Savior and your King and your friend. So you trust Him as your Savior, which means you trust that He died for your sins, and He rose again, and He gives you forgiveness. He'll restore you to God, count you righteous, clothed in His righteousness. You trust Him as your Savior. You trust Him as your King, which means He sets the rules, and you follow. You don't get to pick and choose what parts of the Jesus in the Bible you like. Um, you have to swallow it whole. You trust him as your king and you follow him as your leader. And you trust him as your friend, which means he loves you and he's with you. Similarly, he's the true temple. He's with you by his spirit and he welcomes you into the presence of God. So you trust him as your savior, king, and friend. Okay, second, prayer. Prayer is what we do when we trust God. It's what faith looks like when we talk to God. So Jesus says, verse 28, truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, 
and doesn't doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it'll be done for him. Therefore, I tell you what you ask in prayer, believe that you've received it and it will be yours. Now, it's interesting. He didn't just reference any random mountain. He said this mountain and this mountain right in front of him is the temple mount right there. And so this could be a way of him actually calling his disciples to pray for the very judgment that he said is coming, to join him in calling on God to bring justice to the world. But it does either way have a broader application. He's saying pray with faith, pray big prayers, look to God to do the things only he can do. And it's a call then for us to be prayerful in our individual lives, to carve out time to talk with God and ask of him to do things only he can do, to pray together in our small groups, to pray together as a church family when we gather like we did here, pray together after the service as you're talking together with one another. And then finally, forgiveness, verse 25. He says, and whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. At the heart of the purpose of the temple, which is being fulfilled in Jesus now, was sacrifices for forgiveness. And the great assumption of the temple then was that we are sinners and our sin separates us from God. The temple was a message that said two things at the same time. One, keep out. Your sin keeps you from God. You can't be in his presence. But the very fact that God gave them a temple and planted it right in their midst said, I want to be with you. And I'm making sacrifices so you can come in. And all through Israel's history, it was all symbolic. It was a priest going in there, doing it, representing the people. Everyone's kind of watching it happen. No one's actually going in there to be with God. And then God shows up in Christ. And he says, come to me. Because he is now the true temple. And he has given himself as the true sacrifice on the cross for us. So that we can be forgiven and welcomed into his presence. And, and the logic of grace, according to Jesus here, Notice how he connects God's forgiveness of us and our forgiveness of each other here. The logic of grace is this. Those who are truly forgiven, who know they're forgiven, who receive that into their heart, become the kinds of people who can forgive other people. If you find yourself incapable of forgiving people and constantly bitter, one of the questions you have to ask yourself is, are you actually resting in, receiving, enjoying living in the reality of God's forgiveness of your own sin. Because the logic is, if you are forgiven, you'll be the kind of person who forgives. So as we wrap up, let's consider what Jesus is doing here, just taking a step back. He's entering Jerusalem. He gives this shocking announcement of judgment. It's incredibly provocative. He knows this is going to stir the leaders against him. Right? This will lead to his death, and he knows it. I mean, he wasn't walking in there thinking, I hope they enthrone me. Oh, no, it's not happening, right? He was setting it all up to make it clear who he was and how they should respond, knowing that they won't respond how they should respond, and that's actually part of his divine plan because it was ordered before the foundation of the world that he would be rejected and crucified for our sins so that we could actually be part of his kingdom. So, it's just amazing to think of what he's actually up to here. He's going to take, he announces judgment as he arrives. That announcement stirs up the, the timetable then for him to be crucified within days. And yet that was his plan. And why? To take judgment upon himself for us. So he announces condemnation and judgment, 
in a way that triggers the act that will be Him taking our judgment upon Himself. What mercy! What grace! So, He's walking, or He's waking us up in this text then so that we take refuge in Him. He's waking us up so that we would see the judgment we deserve for our similar hypocrisy and that we would receive His grace and forgiveness, seeing that He took that judgment upon Himself. And He's going to come again. And John in the book of Revelation says he's going to be coming on a horse. I think it's a symbolic vision, so I don't know if it's a real horse or not. But either way, it's, symbol, it's a symbol representing something similar here. He rides into Jerusalem on a colt, pronounces judgment, dies for us, rises again. And now he's going to come again. The symbol, the vision is of him coming on a horse and actually bringing judgment, not just for Jerusalem this time, which happened in AD 70, but for the whole world. And yet he comes not to judge all people, but to also offer himself as a refuge for all those who have trusted him. So which side of Jesus are you on? That's the big question. He welcomes you. He welcomes you as the Savior and King and friend. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this surprising moment of hi in history that happened. Thank you for preserving this by your spirit so that we could read this today. Thank you for speaking to us today through your word. And as we pray to the beginning, for you to do whatever you need to do in our hearts, we thank you for doing that. We trust that you have, and we pray that you continue to do this. So help us to follow your son wholeheartedly. And Lord Jesus, thank you for being bold to announce judgment and having courage to take it upon yourself for us. And Holy Spirit, we pray that you would continue to transform us into the image of Jesus. Amen.